The metaverse is emerging as the next big technology platform, attracting online game makers, social networks, and plenty of investment. And sure, there's lots of hype surrounding the metaverse, but there's also lots of substance, development, and exciting trends. On this podcast series, Into the Metaverse, brought to you by Bloomberg Intelligence, we will break down the biggest developments and bring on the most interesting minds who are building, investing in, and experiencing the metaverse. Welcome to another fantastic episode of Into the Metaverse. We're now on our fifth episode. We're going to about to go pretty big brain and maybe we'll break the internet with this episode with an awesome guest as we are about to dive into the convergence of the metaverse and Web3 pot- protocols such as blockchain and NFTs. I'm Matthew Canterman. I'm a senior equity research analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence based in Hong Kong. My co-host is Yonatan Raz Fridman. He's the CEO and co-founder of SuperSocial. He's in the United States. And our awesome guest today is Ryan Gill. He's the CEO of Crucible, and he's a managing director of the Open Meta Foundation. And he's got a lot of other great titles. But importantly, he's one of the foremost experts in the world of Web3 technologies and their convergence with the metaverse. Welcome, Ryan. Great to be here with both of you. Thank you. Yeah. And so I, I think, you know, I think you've listened to our podcast before and, you know, you've, you've said some great things and you know that we like to start with the same question for each guest. And so... To someone like you, it may sound a bit basic, but we've actually gotten some really great answers to this question from prior guests. And that's helped us to start to shape the definition and consensus of just what is the metaverse. So in your view, how do you define the metaverse? What is it? And as Yon likes to say, is maybe more important, what isn't the metaverse? So we'll start with what it is. I think you know we're at a point in time where we're debating terminology and definitions quite a lot. I saw a tweet thread recently, which was at the metaverse is a point in time. Uh, a little bit more than an actual sort of definite technology. And I think that I think there is some truth to that. The metaverse is just a phase of the internet that we're kind of going through uh, right now. To me, there are some non-negotiables. I believe that it needs to be decentralized. I think the only way to Web3 is through decentralization. And I think that the metaverse is where the internet becomes game-like, you know? So I've defined it as the internet built by game developers. You know, up until this point, we have it architected by web developers and mobile web developers. And in a way, you can sort of start to think of this as like game web developers, you know? And so you, we have to go to where that skill set is. I think the people that have a lot of experience building these games, uh, building the mechanics, and, and it's really a lot more complicated than people think. That's the skill set that is, it's going to sort of like run with this. And, and I think we're seeing that handoff now in some of the sort of Web3 experiences that are being built. It's great that you say that because it's coming on the heels of, you know, earnings season for listed companies. And, you know, we recently heard John Ricciatello, the CEO of Unity, you know, he likes to talk about, you know, 2% of the internet today is enabled by real-time 3D software. And he expects that to get to 50% in a decade. Um, we talked with Mark Petit from Epic Games and he said similar things, right? You know, he expects, you know, real-time 3D to be a key enabling technology of the metaverse. And, you know, you're saying the same things, you know, it's the internet built by game developers. Yeah. And to that second point, what it's not is any one specific experience or any one specific world. I think it's a skeuomorphic idea to talk about we are building a metaverse, right? Um, In many years, we'll look back with hindsight and this will be obvious, just like the internet is. But, you know, for a company to build a metaverse or uh, to build competing metaverses, it's it's like saying each company is building their own internet, you know. And there is the argument for the firewall in China and how 
you know, some of the internet is, is sort of sectioned off, certainly. And I think, unfortunately, we will see that as well. Facebook and big tech will, will, will kind of create their component of it, but that's still just one part of it. And I think as a user or as a player or as a participant in this, you have the metaverse available to you. You can build in it, you can contribute to it, you can be a part of it, but it is, it is the one vast thing that is a, an environment that you can navigate and be a part of. Yeah, I think I want to double double click on that. I think um, such a great definition, internet built by game developers. Obviously, you know, it's super social. We'll subscribe to that 100%. But more importantly, when it comes to the internet, I remember back in the day, I was, you know, I think we're all much, much, much younger in the early 2000. When the internet started, I remember everyone who started a tech company basically was an internet company, right? I don't know if you guys remember it, but if you started a startup in the early 2000, you were an internet company and then it became a web company and then it became a mobile company. And so I think it's very much aligned with how the metaverse might be perceived by our audience in terms of the evolution of the internet uh, or it's kind of a, a, a sort of uh, a natural progression of what the internet is. You know, I do expect that every company is essentially going to be over the next decade a metaverse company to some extent. You know, I think with that regards, I know that there's a lot of skepticism and cynicism around what Facebook has done, even though, you know, turning a, a, a Titanic at a trillion dollar company around so quickly, even changing a name, I think is admirable from a, an entrepreneurial perspective. But I do, I do believe that every company that is going to build something and that could be consumer and, or enterprise or, you know, uh, so on and so forth uh, is essentially building a, a for a metaverse and, and evolution of the Internet. Um, and Ryan, I think you double clicked on something so important, which is, and especially after the announcement from Facebook that they become a metaverse company, there's so still majority of people publicly, I believe, even some big media outlets that still refer to the metaverse as something you access through VR headsets. And I just want to kind of call out again something we've been saying every single episode here, which is the metaverse uh, is definitely not a device. It can be a lot of different things. It could be a point in time. It can be an evolution of the internet. But I think what is really, really clear is that the metaverse is not a VR headset. It's not a mobile device. It's not a console. And that's potentially likely the easiest thing to say that the metaverse isn't at this stage. Agreed. Absolutely. You know, and <clears throat> with my company, I started it back in November of 2018, um, really chose very, very intentionally to spearhead the open metaverse. And I put that word on there because the, the concept, the sci-fi concept that this really important global reaching economic system that is gamified, is owned by a company. It's not a future we really want to get into. And the technology does exist to make sure that that is open. Right. And, you know, the metaverse is something I personally think is worth trillions. It will touch nearly every person on earth and it will really influence um, a lot of our lives just like the internet has. And the amount of value that will be created is, you know, mind blowing. And should we just give that to a few people or there's an opportunity to give that value back to a lot of people on earth and a lot of people that need it and, and it, and it changes their lives, you know? So I think, to put open on there is it's a really important thing that we need to uh, be considering because the internet, when it was built, was built on open protocols and standards. And if it wasn't, it would look very different and the world would look very different. If and, I can just, before, you know, oh, sorry, go for it, Yon. 
No, I just wanted to say before we go to the next question, I just wanted to say that to our audience also that, you know, Ryan and I go a, a tiny, tiny, tiny back, you know, over a year ago, I think Super Social was just a few months old. You know, we were kind of starting a metaverse gaming company, essentially. And I got connected with Ryan and I think it was in the heyday of Clubhouse. Kind of funny to think Clubhouse heyday, it was just a year ago. But I was exposed for the first time to the work Ryan is doing with Crucible and Open Metaverse. And, you know, I think now, a year later, it's so natural to talk about an open metaverse. And what does that mean? I even found myself kind of growing on the concept that the metaverse has to be open for really a metaverse to emerge. And, you know, Ryan, you've been working on it and thinking about it for uh, slightly earlier than a bunch of us. And so we'd love if you can help our listeners understand why you believe that Web3 technologies are so important and how they intersect with the metaverse. And then, you know, if you can also explain that in the context of how does Crucible fit into into that equation? I mean, my path is one of innovation. I've always really looked for blue oceans. Um, I've done it in the investment perspective, uh, you know, angel investing and venture capital. And I've also done it as a builder and a founder. And those are very different places to be a stakeholder. But the, the innovation space broadly sort of just teaches you that you don't need to predict the future. You just need to recognize things in the present, right? And kind of use those to extrapolate what might happen. And so working in Web3 for many years, you look back historically of where all of this sort of open source software comes from. And the internet at first was about end users. You know, the potential of the networking of the internet was about what it could do for people. And these communities have existed since the beginning of the internet, since PGP, to look out for privacy, to look out for digital sovereignty, and to uh, create the internet to be a tool for you know more abundance for people. And then you know Web two happened. We got dot com. It exploded in in business value creation, which is which is great, and and it's really had a lot of great value to to add there. But it, it moved away from being about the end user. And it was about the shareholder of those companies. Um, so we have Web 1 for users. We have Web 2 for shareholders. Of course, I'm oversimplifying this. But those communities have existed throughout this entire story, right? And PGP has kind of evolved. you got W3C Foundation, which is working on standardization. And from these communities, sort of, there's been an emergence over time. And it's, and it's led to... Uh, you know, digital currencies and blockchain technology. And these use cases are uh, available for people for sovereignty of, you know, money, for sovereignty of assets and identity. These hold the solutions, right, as as a, a set of primitives. These are potential solutions for how to underpin the metaverse, keep it open. And a lot of people are very excited about, you know, Bitcoin and Ethereum. And, you know, there's a lot of economic incentive to that. But the same technology, the math and the encryption really can be used for digital sovereignty and identities, you know, decentralized reputation scores for how we're going to act in this metaverse, right? A lot of sort of moderation tools for how we're all going to uh, coexist, right? Because this promise of a utopian metaverse that people seem to talk about a lot, I think is very naive. We're human beings and we're going to bring human nature into all the technology that we use. So I think we need to think, you know, pretty soberly about what might happen in that environment with the benefit of hindsight. And Web3 as 
a set of tech and as a, a movement really driven by communities holds a lot of solutions there, you know, and, and so by putting open in front of metaverse, it's, it's really embracing that community. And I come from a, a philosophy that I've developed where I just think, you know, big tech right now is in a moment where Facebook was first, but we're going to see company after company announce that they're doing the metaverse thing or they're becoming a metaverse company. And that is not an action that is leading, right? That is a reaction to what the communities have been doing for many years. And having been a part of the communities and having been a part of telling the story and building in it, I can tell you that the, the action that has led this has come from the sort of subculture of those communities and the, uh, the organization that's been happening on the internet to build these things and to coordinate and to create experiments and use cases, some of which fail and some of which succeed. That is the leading action that has created the reaction from big tech. And it's an important framing to think about because I think most people learning about this for the first time might see these big successful technology companies leading the way on this. And it's just not true. It's coming from a lot of individual but coordinated action happening in the Web3 communities. And by the way, I, I'm, a, I'm a big uh, kind of um, history buff and, and I believe a lot of things in life repeat themselves. It's a, it's a, it's a cycle. And if you look historically at other technological uh, revolutions or incredible occurrences, I mean, one of the one of the things I'm most passionate about the history of tech is the homebrew computer club, right? Um, the, the personal computer revolution was born in a dorm room in Texas University in in by you know Steve Jobs and Vozniak and, and Bill Gates and Paul Allen and, and and many many other pioneers. You know, I think the internet was was you know popularized by early stage disruptive entrepreneurs, and I think we're seeing something similar now, um, and I think that's powerful. I think that's powerful and it definitely feels like the beginning of something special. If I can just, you know, add some, some context as well on like the public companies that you were talking about, right? You know, also giving a history lesson. If, if we think about why now, you know, why is Facebook doing this now and changing its name to Meta? Why are Apple and Epic going after each other? You know, Facebook was the walled garden on web. Apple and Google are the walled garden on mobile. The metaverse is, is emerging as the next big technology platform, as I like to say on this podcast. That's why Apple and Epic are fighting now. I mean, Epic talks about open standards and being an open metaverse platform, but I also think they want to be the walled garden. You know, they want you to be open, but inside of their network. And I think a lot of companies want to be the walled garden. There's a ton of economic arbitrage that comes with being that platform. And so positioning themselves today, fighting these, these fights in the courts and everything now is setting themselves up to become, to enter that space as, as, as a potential leader in a walled garden. And so having open platforms, decentralized platforms that you're talking about, that you're driving, Ryan, um, is, is, is a great way to, you know, hopefully fight off from having more walled gardens because we've seen what they've done in the past. One of the interesting things that I observe a lot here, and it takes, it, it really requires a lot of uh, nuance, but I think, you know, the landscape is, separated i think you know the the sort of battle of of our time right now is this open versus closed idea this this digital sovereignty right for for people and, and whether there's a war on that or not but i think even in the in the environment of companies you have a lot of web 2.5 type companies that really have begun to embrace this 
a lot from their position. You know, Microsoft and NVIDIA and some of these, these companies that truly are as a massive corporation, along with those other big tech companies, embracing the open source, you know, communities and the libraries, thinking about standardization. I know NVIDIA probably just recently won the uh, Time Award for best, uh, best invention for Omniverse and, you know, using uh, standardization with uh, USD f- formats and really moving in that direction. And I-, I want to acknowledge Epic because I think they get misunderstood a little bit. You know, when I started Crucible in 2018, the only other person I saw on the world stage really saying open metaverse was Tim Sweeney. And he was doing it, you know, at SIGGRAPH with a, with a keynote and, and it was within the circle of the industry. But, you know, he certainly was talking about standardization. I think, you know, from his position, he recognizes the potential pros and cons of what can happen in the future. I think he recognizes the responsibility of how big this is. And, and the lawsuit is interesting because you could frame that lawsuit as a personal loss, but a win for the ecosystem, right? Like, in a way, you kind of sacrifice mobile Fortnite, which he looked at the data, he saw you know, Sony is where the users are. So they took their investment from Sony and mobile wasn't where everybody was in majority. So that was what he was willing to go out with. But, you know, the, the, the outcome of that lawsuit is better for the entire environment and ecosystem of, of developers, but not a personal win, you know, for, for Fortnite being on mobile. And I think that speaks volumes. You know, I think he, he certainly wants Unreal to be the preferred engine, right? And Epic to be a successful company. But I think the action that he took wasn't just completely self-serving. And I think that that demonstrates some, some pretty serious, um, you know, vision and foresight for what's coming and, and how it needs to be a healthy environment for developers and how it's better for all of us to start to bring some of these conversations to the public. You know, and, and so I think he was successful in that, right? You know, other big tech companies will stay web too. They will try to remain in this sort of like very locked environment with their moats, with their advertising business models, and they just want to farm attention. And I don't know that that's a very like long-term success model to have. I think it's a pretty short-term, short, nearsighted view and they'll dominate in the short term, you know, but again, I just want to reiterate from this point forward, what's important is driven by community, not by user bases, you know, not by customers and, and users, but by communities and participants and citizens. You know, that's, that's where we're going. And I, I just want to say one thing. Um, Star Wars fans in our podcast would enjoy hearing what I'm about to say. But I think about it in a lot of these Web2 well-guarded platforms that defined the internet until today over the past 20, 25 years, you know, I, there is Master Yoda's quote, which is one of my favorite in where he says, let go of everything you fear to lose. And I think that's what I imagine a lot of these companies needing to do in the coming five to 10 years is letting go of what they fear to lose, which is control. I think it will help us build a truly remarkable internet for, for ourselves and for future generations, which will be more collaborative, more exciting and more rewarding also uh, for everyone because we're obviously, and these are kind of more bigger trends that are happening. We all know that we're moving to a world of automation where AI is going to replace a lot of jobs. And so findings the way, finding the way where a future workforce, millions of millions of people 
can be rewarded for their passion and can be rewarded in a new digital realm that mimics the jobs of real life, but in a whole different way. This is part of the responsibility that I think lays with not only big companies, but also anyone that is building infrastructure, technologies, applications, products, and platforms, you know, in the coming decade. And I also want to encourage people, I know this is a, a Bloomberg podcast, so I want to encourage people who are less familiar with these Web3 communities, do a formal analysis the way you would with anything else in your business. Go research these communities, right? At first, they might look silly. They might feel like, you know, the aesthetic of the art is not really your vibe, but go look at CryptoPunks, go look at Board Ape Yacht Club, look at some of these other communities around these Web3 projects and recognize the passion, right? And the trust in those communities, the quotient of true passion. You can never find that in a user base of a technology company, even in the billions. Those are customers or those are users, but they're not passionate communities. Uh, using these platforms doesn't change your life where you quit your job and jo dive full time into it and you find your best friends that are like lifelong relationships, right? That's what's happening in these communities. And if you get past whether you like the art or you think the names are silly or stupid, which it takes a little bit of time to get past, you recognize the human behavioral thing that's happening. I believe that big tech can't compete with that. And so they have the economy of scale. But over time, you know, the idea that play to earn games will, 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 uh, will net you an actual income, maybe lift you out of the poverty line with all of your best friends while you play games and contribute to worlds of new story IP that you can, you can actually affect and change. Like, I just don't think that that's a paradigm that the advertising attention model of, of web two is even fully aware of yet to know how to even replicate or compete with. And, and one other thing I wanted to hit on, it kind of ties some of the things you just talked about together. You know, when we think about the advertising based model of the, of the current internet platforms, whether it's Facebook, Google, whatever, a lot, of, as you said, a lot of that's powered by traffic. When we talked with Kathy Hackle on our second episode, and I think you've said similar things in the past about NFTs and, you know, the ability for individuals to express themselves in virtual worlds for creators and influencers to, you know, create deeper ties with communities by, you know, releasing NFTs to their communities you know, that's going to change the way that corporations want to interact with their consumers via marketing. You know, it's no longer going to be buying ads from Facebook en masse and throwing stuff up on the internet. It's now going to be building a game experience and interacting over time with your consumers. And so, you know, not only is this technology, you know, at odds with that business model, but I see it as cannibalizing that business model and taking away the gravy train that exists there. And so, I do now. I don't necessarily think you need NFTs to have a, you know, an, a virtual avatar-based economy like Roblox. But I think that NFTs provide a lot of value in terms of consumers really feel an ownership of that item. Obviously, you know, I think you're going to have strong thoughts on NFTs, but you know, maybe you could elaborate more on, you know, just that idea of digital self-expression and, and, and influencers working in the communities and how that ties in with NFTs. Yeah, absolutely. So um, a couple of years ago, I actually worked with Kathy Hackle to sort of coin and define a term that I had been shaping up a lot in Forbes called direct avatar. And really, that was at a point in time where I wanted to, I wanted to express this idea 
in the form of supply chain. And we were in the middle of a lockdown and we were only able to survive because of direct to consumer at that time, right? Like imagine being able to get your food or you know, any of the things that you needed on a day to day basis without that direct to consumer model it would have been very difficult. And, you know, so I've found that people need to draw a parallel to what they know while they're learning new ideas. So, you know, I kind of shaped this idea of direct to avatar where we're, we've dematerialized the supply chain and the end user or the customer is an avatar. And the world of marketing picked that up very quickly, right? And CMOs and boardrooms were, you know, contacting me and really trying to understand it a lot from the perspective of digital fashion or, you know, other, other industries. But really what that was about is that in these Web3 communities, your identity is an avatar, right? In these games, your identity is an avatar. So it's a way of looking at supply chain both from the from the company perspective as a corporation, but also as a startup. You know, if you want to create a new business in this world as a startup, how do you think about what that means from a direct to avatar perspective? These communities, these new worlds, these new stories, this new IP, this is all going direct to avatars, right? In some senses, these PFPs like CryptoPunks and Bored Apes, they are avatars. People are changing their profile photo. That's what PFP stands for. And they're identifying themselves through this thing, you know, through this piece of art. And I, you know, certainly the gaming industry will be transformed with this and avatars become rigged and playable. And, you know, you can have wallets. That's, that's all coming. And, and, and I think direct avatar really just means as a business with your product, with your supply chain, with your values and your philosophy, you know, learning that lesson about that being where the future is going. What does that mean? And so influencers and um, music and fashion, and you're just going to watch all of these industries kind of go through this paradigm shift. And one of the interesting things is that brands and celebrities and big sort of like, you know, clout driven um, figures who usually would have their hand out for a million dollar endorsement fee to get involved in these things are just buying in themselves. Right? They're just they're just going to the secondary market and buying in and being a part of the community. And, and that's adding an incredible amount of value to it. You know, PayPal did this. They bought a CryptoPunk. I think Timberland, the music producer, just put together some sort of album with Bored Apes. A uh, friend of mine, Nick Adler, who works a lot with Snoop Dogg, just signed four Bored Apes together and created a band, kind of like the Gorillas. You know, it's just like this is a creative collectively uh, created experience based off of all these different worlds. And if you thought about how to build your business like uh, Dungeons and Dragons and how to create an experience for your customers and your users within that sort of model of a game mechanic, you can see why people are very passionate about that. Yeah. And I, I, uh, this is fantastic uh, area to double click on Ryan. And by the way, as a side note, I had the pleasure of, you know, in a, in a very small way, contributing to that, to that Forbes piece, which I think was such a profound moment for me when Kathy and Ryan reached out to me to contribute. And I, I, I just got started to get to know Ryan and Kathy back then. And this is something we also, Kathy and I spoke about a few weeks ago in one of our, one of our podcasts and beyond that, the power of the avatars and everything that is going to happen as, 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 as part of the avatar evolution, 
I think what's also fundamental is that what does it actually mean, right, for people, for brands, for companies? Until today, the internet was very much about building email lists, the way you interacted with consumers, the way you interacted with people over the internet was basically on email and sending emails and, and, and managing email lists and so on and so forth. And I think we're moving to a world that, first of all, all of us are going to have multiple identities in the metaverse. We can have multiple identities. We can have identities that uh, are more context-based, type of experience-based, platform-based, whatever. But there's going to be a lot of different identities. You know, what that means is the way we're going to interact with, with, with one another, the way companies will interact with, with us is very different. There, there may not be an email address. They're probably not going to be a real name. They're probably not going to be a real photo. You're going to see someone that looked like a board ape with a pseudonym, uh, no email address, and you may only interact with them through, you know, maybe if there's like an interactive wallet or something. And so, you know, I think that really forces us to rethink completely the way we're going to interact with one another, the way brands are going to interact with people. And in a funny way, I kind of think of, of Discord that is such an incredible place for building communities. I almost think of Discord as a potentially kind of a CRM of the metaverse, right? A place where everything becomes a focal point of congregation of information and interaction with people and among people and between them and brands. And so there's a lot of unknown factors of what that actually means that we're going to move to a world of direct to avatar versus direct to consumer. And that is really exciting. There's a lot of things to unpack. There's a lot of things to open up and really understand. And this is all opportunities for creators, for entrepreneurs, for companies, big and small. And of course, for investors to understand what the winds of change and, and capitalize on not only what makes economic sense, but also what they're excited about, because it is obvious that at the moment, a lot of these developments are passion-based. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head. You actually um, also just explained the V1 and V2 of the product that I'm developing um, with Crucible, which is called Emergence. And we'll launch it in January, early, very early iteration. You know, this is a gradual thing, but it really is around that idea. It's, it's decentralized identity. Uh, with reputation scores to allow for a, a, anonymity in this environment with accountability so that you're still held accountable for your actions even when we are in a place where you know actual human identity is anonymous or you have the choice to not share that. And I've built it all as sort of software that integrates into the game engine. So I'm starting with Unity and Unreal uh, as an SDK. So it's all based in this sort of standard of digital identity called self-sovereign identity. And we're attaching wallet integrations to that, uh, which can accumulate assets, which can hold the sort of like credentials, which are apart from emails, you know, so this is, it's all being built around the choice that, you know, it needs to be decentralized and it ultimately will be driven by community. So about six months ago in June, I raised uh, quite a lot of money from the community to create an association in Switzerland in Zug called Open Meta. And I will turn that into a DAO in January. We have our first sort of 50 participants that I've handpicked that are the most important people, I think, to the governance and the decision-making around not just the metaverse, but the open metaverse. And I think between the sort of product, which can integrate and game developers are given in order to choose to build this way, almost as an on-ramp, you know, an easy on-ramp, 
uh, and then the, the DAO and the community that can come together and make decisions together and actually, you know, create some action plans. Um, hopefully beginning next year, I think that we can all, you know, really find some unification um, because the only way we are going to compete with the sort of dominant landscape of big tech, which have trillions of dollars to spend is if we do this together. I think that's awesome. And I totally agree. I mean, I think that a lot of this needs to be done as, as we've been saying, community driven, you know, for our investor audience, because obviously, you know, this is a Bloomberg intelligence podcast and we do like to have some sort of an investment focus to go with it. Um, you know, for those investors looking at putting money to work in, in crypto assets, blockchains, NFTs, you know, what are there specific blockchains or companies operating in that space that are the most exciting to you, obviously Crucible, but other than Crucible, uh, and when it comes to Web3 development for the metaverse that you would call out, you know, as, as potential, as ones to watch for our investors? Yeah, you know, um, Crucible is sort of a layer three in a way. Um, you know, you have your layer ones, which are the blockchains themselves. You know, I think obviously you'd be familiar with Ethereum. Ethereum is is, is quite limited in its ability to scale and, and its price to use, but Layer twos have developed on top of that to sort of bring those costs down and create more scalability. So Polygon, you know, is is one who's who's an investor and a partner of ours. Um, you know, you have Immutable as well, which is beginning to do some kind of interesting things. Then you have other layer ones. Uh, Solana is one definitely to to look at. I'm in Lisbon right now, actually, on the tail end of uh, you know some conferences with these blockchains and with these communities. Yeah, and it's it's all very exciting. But again, going back to the analysis, I think if you do analysis on Web 2 as it is, and then you do analysis on Web 3, you can really identify and understand how those things are different. And, and that's the heuristic really to make your investment decisions. And I think I think with that, you know, I think when we talked last, you know, we, we kind of chatted about it back and forth. And I think you had some interesting thoughts around, you know, which companies you know, listed companies out there today, you think that are going to be, you know, the the strongest adopters of Web3 technologies and really help them flourish. You know, I think, you know, a lot of this development's being done, private companies, you know, smaller companies, startups, but, you know, at some point, these large listed companies are going to dip their feet in or potentially more. So just curious your thoughts, you know, who you think might might be the, the biggest adopters of, of Web3? Well, I think, a lot of really big companies have sunk cost into their model, right? They have shareholders. So it's easy to do brand change, you know, as a, as a kind of like marketing campaign, but it's really difficult to change your business model. So, you know, these sort of advertising business models, I think it's, it's a challenge to get everybody to rally around that. Really changing that might, you know, tank your, your, your share price. But like I said, Nvidia, you know, Microsoft, Ubisoft, a lot of a lot of these bigger companies that are embracing open source and really truly understanding it from the from the foundational pieces, making smart acquisitions, changing the paradigm of revenue in the future, understanding that you know business will be done differently. I, I think it's an opportunity for any company, but your values have to come along with it. You know, if you just intellectually understand this and you see an opportunity for some more profitability or a better reputation. Um, you're not going to get there, and the community is going to spot you. I guarantee you, we, it happens over and over. You know, companies will approach me, 
in every industry. And the attitude is, we recognize this to be the future. We just don't have a strategy yet. And, you know, the first thing I say is go into the communities, you know, hire some kids, have them teach you about these communities, bring them in, go do some like Hunter S. Thompson Gonzo type shit, like really get in there, you know, and, and become a part of it authentically. The strategy will come from that. And whether that means completely changing and reinventing your business or whether it just means contributing to the community in some meaningful way, um, you will be embraced. I guarantee you. But if you go in with this extraction and you're just, you know, trying to take information and create some strategy so that, you know, you can cross the chasm and survive, you'll be spotted and, and it won't feel authentic. And, and it probably won't work long term. Yeah. And I want to I want to add about that. I think if you look historically also, you want to look at inspiring stories like the turnaround Michael Dell did with Dell, right? Personal computer company, ultimately rapidly adopted enterprise software servers and many other technologies that were amplified by the personal computing revolution. And so when folks look at big tech companies that need to adopt to this shift, I think it makes a lot of sense to look at the leadership level first, right? Who are those leaders? Do they really get it? Do they talk about it? And what are some of the actions that they're already making? Because making such a transformative evolution for a company to move from one business model to another require bold leadership and I don't know yet what it means for a company like Facebook, but just the notion of a change that's already pretty impressive for a company of that size, whatever they end up doing, it's not really the point. And I already get a bit worried when I hear CEOs of publicly traded companies that don't have a POV yet on open metaverse and blockchain and what does it all mean, especially companies that build consumer infrastructure. Um, I think enterprise always comes later. So I envision, you know, two, three years from now, you're going to start hearing every enterprise company CEO talks about the metaverse. You're already starting kind of slowly. I mean, Microsoft just introduced the enterprise metaverse. Obviously, NVIDIA is there, even though NVIDIA is kind of playing both sides, both consumer and enterprise, which is one of the things that make it such a phenomenal company. But I think it starts with the leadership level. Um, those, these type of changes, these type of transformations um, don't happen from typically in big companies. They don't happen from, from the ground up. They happen from top down. It requires bold, brave, uh, visionary leadership. Um, and I'm excited. I'm excited to see what are those big companies that are going to make the leap. And no matter what they are, I think it's phenomenal to look at a company like Nike that already have a metaverse office, essentially, in the CTO office of the company. And Nike has always been an innovator, digitally speaking, for the past decade. But I'm sure there's going to be more to follow. And you always have these sort of mavens who make the first step. And I think it's going to be across the board. It's going to be companies in multiple in multiple different industries uh, because this is going to touch everyone. Many people don't get it yet, but it will touch everyone. And I think that's exciting. It, it is really exciting. I think we're <clears throat> we're in a period of time right now where it exists in the boardroom. You know, and, and that's extending to new positions, right? Chief metaverse officer, head of metaverse. That's a really important step. But we're also in a period of time of a lot of lip service where people are 
saying things to play both sides to be reputationally safe and to seem innovative while really not moving or executing on anything and the values are not aligned with it yet. And so, you know, open meta as a DAO exists to bring community together to not antagonize in any way, but but also hold accountability to this lip service. Um, we believe that this is important and it's far too important to get wrong. And, you know, um, companies have an important stake to hold in this. You know, we live in a capitalistic world, right? These these products, these services, they've taken over the world. They've influenced our lives. You can't live without them. And if you're not fortunate enough to have them, your life is, is truly, you know, affected ne- negatively uh, to, to being a part of the world economy. And, and the metaverse is Web3 with 5G. It'll leapfrog people from not having roads to being tapped into the metaverse. And like, this is all real stuff. This is we're living through this. The, the implications are, are significant, both negatively and positively. I, I don't believe technology holds values inherently. Uh, in itself, it's tools that we use and the people that design them and use them, the values of those people, that's the impact, you know, that, that we see on earth. And so the blockchain is really a, just a set of tech where now these communities, which collective intelligence has gotten much better, you know, coordination and, and organizing principles have evolved. And now we have an economic model on rails that we've built ourselves that are separate from fiat. Like we can do things, we can move at fast paces, you know, and there's definitely a fight club like, you know, tone and energy to this where, you know, we were, we were sort of promised something and given something very different. And this is personal responsibility. This is what you're seeing. This is the people in the community using the tools that we have to change it. And um, my generation is going to sort of take, take things over next. And I'd say we're a group of people that really understand inherently and intrinsically what I'm saying right now. And so it, it seems like just silly cartoons right now, but it's something very important that's happening. And from every position in every company or nonprofit or organization or individual investor, if you learn this lesson, we will embrace you in the community. There are tools for you to be a part of it and to transition what you do in a way that you know is meaningful and Every year that goes by from now on, this will become more obvious to you. And if you listen to what we're saying now, um, you know, if you reach out to me, I'm, I'm Ryan at crucible.network. You know, we're all very open and, and we want to work with you. And Crucible exists to create a tool set to make this easy, specifically for game developers. And Open Meta exists to create a global community of people that you can be a part of, um, you know, if you want to help contribute to this. Just to put some numbers perspective from the Bloomberg terminal, since this, again, this is a Bloomberg podcast around the degree of lip service and corporate communication with using the TA function transcript analysis, you can search for the term metaverse. And so far in the quarterly earnings transcripts, the earnings calls and investor conferences this quarter, the term metaverse has been used 357 times. It was used 100 times last quarter. And in the quarter year ago, it was used four times. So there's a lot of good things happening. There's a lot of companies embracing the metaverse. Roblox has gone public since then. So clearly there's an uptick, but there's also a lot of lip service. And I I won't name the name, but you can probably extrapolate it if you follow the markets. There was a Korean gaming company that had two 
really high profile games completely bomb and do horribly that were supposed to really be key drivers for them. And the, the financials were underperforming, but then they go out and say that they're going to make an NFT game. The stock was up 30%. So, you know, there's, there's a, there's a lot of, there is a lot of lip service out there. There's a lot of things that, you know, need to be reined in, you know, because we don't want to lose sight of what the real end goal is here. Building on what you just said, Matthew, <laughs> from a, from a pure, uh, uh, investor measurement perspective, the amount of times Metaverse was mentioned last year and the amount of time it's mentioned this year, I think it's a pretty phenomenal year-over-year growth. And so I think that's something investors can definitely understand. And then compare that to words like uh, interoperability, right? Or, or the things that actually matter about the Metaverse, it's, it's going to be far less. And another piece is like, we're, we're just in a time of extreme distrust in institutions, and that goes far beyond just business. That's just the state of the world now and what we've been living through in the past year or two. But that translates also and it extends into big tech. And so people can kind of, you know, feel it out. If you look at the reaction around Mark Zuckerberg's announcement, you know, certainly he's not a villain. There's, there's, there's nothing. Um, I don't want to turn this into a discussion of like vilifying anyone, but, but the reaction and the memes that came from that. They speak for themselves, right? There's there's a there's a serious distrust, and it comes from the hindsight that we have of the discrepancy between what people are saying in these companies and what they are doing, and their inability to directly answer questions about the negative implications of what they're doing. Again, maybe it's not intentional. You know, there's no strategy here to take over the world like a, a Bond villain, but like. There are negative implications in which I think we need to speak more about because more screen time isn't necessarily a good thing. And the metaverse, by definition, is more screen time. And, you know, we're, we're not talking about emotional intelligence or mental health quite enough in this, you know, in this discussion. Um, it is very exciting tech. Economically, it's an explosion that we've never seen before. But, you know, our mental health and our emotional intelligence is deteriorating rapidly very rapidly. That's a great topic for a future uh, podcast, Matthew. I think we should find someone that can really unpack that because Ryan, I think you're uh, definitely making a really, really important point. As exciting as these technological shifts are and what it will enable us to do in a more immersive social and uh, an owned internet, I think it's also a whole shift of what does it actually mean to have a whole generation interacting mostly through, you know, screens and goggles and versus in real life. And what does it all mean for what humanity will become in the next 10 to 20 years? What type of people are we going to be uh, when we start spending so much time? Um, and I think that's, that's, a, that's a really important point. I'd love to unpack that in a future podcast, but uh, maybe, maybe this is a great segue to kind of wrapping up this episode. One final thought on that. I want to use your term and double click on that. I think the question is, is the mental health deterioration coming from more screen time or is it coming from what we've optimized those screens to show us and get us addicted to, right? Is it the nature of the actual, like looking at the screens and being on the technology or is it because we've scientifically optimized this to compare ourselves and feel uh, in, inferior all the time. You know, it's like, these are the questions we really have to look at. And companies like Facebook, I'm sorry, but it's incumbent upon these companies 
to be to really be doing this this research and to be supporting this and to be uh, incorporating it into the design thinking while they're just going to optimize more technology to do that even better you know so um not only just looking at the business potential here but also you know as a company i think we need to have the discussion of their role and their responsibility in in balancing out the way that they design this technology so that it's better for for users and people and that you know we don't go sleepwalking down a path that does start to look like black mirror yeah and 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 to that end ryan you know i think the internet over the past 20 years has changed humans and humanity and i think it's safe to say that the metaverse and and the type of interactions and experiences we're going to have is going to change humans and humanity. And I think we just need to make sure it's going to change in a way that will make us all better, happier, healthier, and more fulfilled. Cause that's the ultimately, uh, one of the key risks on how it's all going to look like, um, at the end of the day, you know, as humans, we want to be, we want to be happy. We want to be fulfilled. We want to be healthy and, and definitely with the technological shift, this is going to make an impact. And we don't know yet what that means. But I think to your point, we need to stay ahead of it. We need to stay informed and we need to hold the companies that are shaping that future, small or large, accountable. And everything that I do is a call for collaboration, you know, a a call to action, an open call to come join us. So, you know, email me. Um, We're on Telegram at t.me slash open metaverse. The website is crucible.network. Starting this week, there will be a lot more announcements and I'm moving product further into testing so that I could release it openly in January. And, um, you know, we'll, we'll begin to, to kind of get these tools out there and see what we can do with them. But uh, at any stage, if you're interested, please get in touch and, uh, and cl- uh, please come join us. Ryan, thank you so much for your time. With that, we'll wrap up this episode of Into the Metaverse. Have a good week.